Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman, Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Regular listeners may have heard my discussion with Wolf Gruner about his book, The Holocaust in Bohemia and Moravia, a month or so ago. I'm glad to welcome Wolf back and thrilled to welcome Stephen Ross to the show as well. Steve is professor of history at the University of Southern California, as is Wolf, and and most recently the author of a book called Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America. And today we'll be talking with both of them about their edited collection, New Perspectives on Kristallnacht, After 80 Years, the Nazi Pogrom in Global Comparison. With that, Wolf and Steve, thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks for having us, Kelly. Yeah, thank you. So, Steve, uh, Wolf's been on the show before, but but you have not been. So I'd like to ask you just to introduce yourself a little bit. How, how did you become a historian? How, why USC? And, and how did you become interested in the Holocaust? Well, uh, how I became, let's start backwards. How I became interested in the Holocaust was both my parents are survivors. My mother had gone from Ludge to uh, Auschwitz, to Bergen-Belsen, to a munitions camp in Salzwedel, Germany. And uh, my father had been in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he went from the Warsaw Ghetto to Dachau. Uh, The two of them met after the war uh, in Munich and then came to America. And I was born four years to the day of VE Day. So growing up with the Holocaust was part of my background. And uh, I had always been interested in history. I was a history political theory undergraduate at Columbia. I went to Oxford for two years and then went to Princeton, where, of all things, I worked um, in working class, 19th century working class history. And uh, my first book was on the History of Industrialization and Class Formation in Cincinnati, Ohio. It came out in the middle of the Reagan era, and no one uh, wanted to read about labor history. And so I decided I did not want to write for, you know, 150 graduate students and some faculty who were in the field. And so I started writing about Hollywood in politics, and that got a much bigger audience, also became more interesting. And then to cut to the present, I found while I was writing um, a book called Hollywood Left and Right, I was writing a chapter on Edward G. Robinson, and I got very interested in the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. And through that, I discovered there was an archive at Cal State Northridge, which was the Jewish Federation archive. And I had gone out there to find out more about the Anti-Nazi League, and then I discovered there were like 300 boxes there. And it was telling a story. They had just put up a website 
um, called In Our Own Backyard, Nazis and Fascists in 1930s, 40s L.A. And so I realized there were too many boxes to go through. But I thought when I finished that book that I would go and see what was there. And that's what I did. And what I discovered is that Jews were running a spy ring out of L.A., uh, basically asking Christian war veterans and their wives to go undercover and join every Nazi and fascist group in the city to try to rise to positions of leadership and to report back to Leon Lewis, the spy master. Uh, and that's when I discovered that amazing story of Nazis in L.A. from 1933 to 1945. And obviously, in the course of looking at that period, I started reading about Kristallnacht and discovered that I thought American historians or historians who looked at American reactions to Kristallnacht got it all wrong, that um, they, they talked about how Kristallnacht was a turning point in American popular opinion, but it was a turning point that had very little valence. And what nobody talked about was Kristallnacht also empowered Nazis and fascists across the entire United States because they suddenly said, not a single Western leader is standing up to stop Hitler. We can do whatever the hell we want. And that's when they started preparing for what they called their tag, the day when Nazis would rise up, defeat communists, uh, defeat the Jew deal, as they call it and take over America from the Rosenfeld administration. So that's that's how I got from being an undergraduate to doing this book with Wolf. So we'll come back that it's a great story that you tell in your contribution and we'll come back to that but so so Wolf how did it come from from that point how did it come that you two edited a book on Kristallnacht? So um, that's also a short and a long story. Uh, the long, uh, the long version is so. As uh, you know, I work on the Holocaust for now more than thirty years, and I always kind of uh, included Kristallnacht in my kind of uh, thinking and my research. And um, uh, but this was kind of one element of a lot of aspects of the Holocaust I was looking at, and. A few years ago, when I uh, thought about um, uh, when I came to USC, I uh, started watching testimonies of the USC Shaw Foundation Visual History Archive, the archive with over now over fifty-five thousand survivor testimonies. And I did this for my when I got here to USC, I got an end chair so as the inaugural speech as a chairholder, as the new chairholder. So I thought I used these testimonies kind of see what is the kind of perspective of these survivors. And then I was totally struck that they talk uh, about uh, Kristallnacht in a very different way than we would uh, read in regular literature on the Holocaust. So a lot of the what they talked about was about the uh, invasion of privacy, the uh, attacks on private homes. And at this point, I was uh, this kind of revised everything I knew, and I thought I knew everything, right? Uh, I mean, after uh, 20 years of, at that point, 20 years of Holocaust research, I thought, I, I know. And I'm um, so I started very slowly digging over a long period of time. And when uh, I founded the research center, the Center for Advanced Genocide Research, 
I on my list was kind of at one point I want to do a kind of a look into Kristallnacht in a different way because I thought when I found this there must be also more new research, and um, in general most historians thought Kristallnacht is one of the best researched events in Holocaust history. There is nothing new to discover. Uh, this is done. It is. Have, uh, I mean, there are plenty of books you can read, documentations, everything is available. So people know everything. Um, and that's when uh, kind of Steve and I, at some point, we talked about this and thought, no, this is actually not right. Uh, we have to re really revisit this event. And... Uh, I mean, the 80th anniversary was kind of coming in handy. We thought this is a good uh, timing to really uh, look back and uh, kind of investigate this from very different angles and kind of bring people here to L.A. for a conference to uh, con uh, kind of bring people together with the newest research on this, um, uh, on this uh, very crucial event in Holocaust history. So, so I suspect many of our listeners know something about Kristallnacht, but I don't want to assume everybody does. So so maybe, Wolf, can you just say a little bit, just kind of a basic explanation of what Kristallnacht was and how it came to happen? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's also a very uh, complex uh, question. Uh, just the baseline is, uh, I mean, this was the most violent um, uh, uh, event in the German Jewish history uh, after 1933. Uh, it happened in November 1938. Um, it wasn't uh, what most people know that uh, synagogues were, were burned all over Germany. Um, shop, uh, shops uh, and stores were demolished in uh, almost every city in um, uh, Germany and Austria. Uh, a lot of people were uh, murdered during this night and the next day. Um, Jewish institutions were attacked. Uh, and so this was a, a very violent event. And normally people think um, this was a reaction of the Nazi leadership towards the assassination attempt of a Polish uh, uh, Jewish teenager in Paris who tried to um, uh, uh, murder the uh, German diplomat. But there's a longer con or a broader context behind this. This was just the pretext the Nazi leadership Hitler and Goebbels used, because um, it is actually a, a reaction um, to find a solution out of a deadlock situation. Uh, in 1938, after the, the Nazis annexed Austria, uh, suddenly everything what they tried to accomplish to drive Jews out of Germany, uh, kind of their success in parentheses kind of was vanishing in a minute because they got more Jews suddenly in their, uh, uh, under their rule than they had before. So they resorted uh, in a way to uh, violence as one political means, uh, and especially so because they, at the time in 1938, they thought uh, that a war is imminent. And looking backwards to the First World War, they thought, our biggest fear is, in their minds, um, that the Jews will stab us uh, in the back as they did in the First World War. This was a total myth and construction, but that's how the Nazis kind of looked at it. So for them, it was uh, kind of uh, the precondition for war was to drive the Jews out of Germany. 
But there was one problem. Everything what they did was actually preventing Jews from leaving Germany because they got impoverished. They had uh, they uh, kind of had no means to uh, get out. Uh, the international community was not really welcoming Jews as refugees. Uh, and after this um, well-known conference, which was uh, instigated by the U.S. government in Evian uh, 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 in Europe, where no country really want to receive Jews, uh, the Nazis were kind of in the situation in their minds, what are we doing now? We are thinking about going to war with, to, uh, towards uh, kind of Czechoslovakia, also Poland, but um, the only way to get the Jews out is violence. And that's kind of, I think, the context for Kristallnacht. And Wolf, one of the things your your essay says, or it does, is is to shed light on an aspect of the violence that has been overlooked. So, so can you talk about the way in which Kristallnacht included significant destruction of Jewish houses and, and violence against their residents? Yeah, so uh, kind of the common understanding of uh, Kristallnacht, as I said earlier, was um, there was a huge attack of uh, uh, against synagogues and um, Jewish shops. Um, and this was kind of the turning point in anti-Jewish policies and uh, made a kind of convinced a lot of Jews uh, to flee. Uh, I always thought there's one kind of uh, slight problem with this uh, understanding because a lot of the Jews uh, who were attacked by the Nazis were, uh, in their um, understanding, actually Protestants or Catholics. They were converted. But for the Nazis, they were racial Jews. So I thought uh, always, what did drive them to uh, kind of leave the country immediately. And when I uh, watched these testimonies, that's when it struck me and I thought, this is actually might be the real reason these kind of large scale attacks uh, on um, Jewish uh, rental apartments and private homes. And uh, what I found out is after uh, going back to diaries, contemporary letters, diplomatic reports, I found that uh, the scale of the violence against Jewish homes far over a kind of was far bigger than the, the violence against uh, Jewish shops or synagogues. So my estimate uh, now is that over 10,000 homes were destroyed. And uh, we really talk about destruction. It was not just kind of uh, um, uh, uh, kind of axing uh, uh, a door uh, down and uh, smashing some windows. What we talk about is, as uh, all the testimonies almost um, uh, have in common, is to the, uh, the detailed uh, destruction of furniture, china, sometimes even kind of heatings were destroyed, um, water pipes were, uh, were kind of destroyed. So there was a, a level of uh, violence against uh, property, which was unprecedented, plus, plus uh, also... Uh, the invasion of the homes also was accompanied by almost on a regular basis beatings of the uh, owners of these homes, uh, like uh, 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 the um, husband and also wives. So it's not that just the kind of violence was targeting males. It was uh, a lot of women were uh, beaten up during this night. There was a lot of sexual abuse, murder uh, also accompanying. And, and this also explains us a little bit uh, how did actually the stormtroopers and DSS actually find their victims? It was in the homes, because if you think about the, the attacks started at night, 
nobody, no shopkeeper was at night in their in their shops, but they were all at home. And so this unprecedented level of violence kind of changes our view of the uh, of the event tremendously, and also explains kind of um, the many suicides which were committed by the victims, uh, the large kind of wave of uh, uh, flight afterwards. Um, so that's kind of really uh, uh, enables us to really uh, not only see the individual experience, but also kind of the repercussions this event had. Steve, a number of the essays in your book um, talk about reporting about Kristallnacht. So, so I guess I start with you. Can you say something, uh, and then Wolf can pitch in if he wants. Uh, how how much reporting is there about Kristallnacht, either in Germany or in other countries, and and how do the various newspapers put put Kristallnacht into some kind of context of of the rest of what's going on at the time? Well, you had uh, reporting on Kristallnacht throughout uh, those several days on the front pages of newspapers throughout the country. And this is why when historians argue that it changed American public opinion, they're right, that the coverage, unlike most of the coverage up to then, when people argue Americans didn't know, my answer to that is they didn't want to know. Because if you look in most major newspapers, there is constant coverage of the Holocaust, well, not of the Holocaust, of Hitler's Germany, and there is even coverage of the Holocaust later on, but it's buried. It tends to be buried in the back of the newspapers. So you have to want to know about this. Whereas Kristallnacht was up front uh, and covered very extensively, but after several weeks, it once again disappeared from the front pages of the newspapers and were relegated to yet another story of German atrocities, Austrian atrocities, in the back pages of places like the New York Times or LA Times. So people soon forgot. They knew there were things happening. They knew Hitler was a tyrant. Uh, They knew Hitler was killing Jews. And so that's it. The question then is, what do they do? And they did very little. I'm intrigued. So, so do, how do we, how, what do we know about how much freedom reporters had to in Germany, American or other foreign reporters in Germany had to report on these? Are they did they feel constrained by the threat of being ejected from the country or having their credentials revoked? Do they basically feel like they can say what they want? Wolf, I'm not sure you can join in with me, but I know one of the essays talked about, and I think it was the Associated Press reporter there, that they knew if they wanted to keep getting material, they had to be careful of what they released and what they actually printed. So reporters were being given access before 1939. But my guess is if you reported in a way the the German government didn't like, you weren't going to get access anymore. Yeah, I, I uh, fully agree. Uh, so there were a lot of incidences uh, before Kristallnacht where, because of certain reporting, newspapers, uh, foreign newspapers were prohibited or forbidden uh, for a day or a week or a, a month. So there was a lot of censorship going on. And so who was reporting was expecting, in a way, repercussions. But uh, the most astonishing thing for me is actually how detailed the reporting was, nevertheless, 
So, for example, um, I very early on, I did research on Berlin. And now coming back, revisiting Kristallnacht, I found the only numbers of people murdered in Berlin came actually from a uh, London Times article and uh, the, uh, the day after the event. So uh, we have no other numbers. This is the only uh, kind of source we have. So uh, there is a lot of extremely detailed reporting about the events. On the other, on the flip side is um, they report what they see. So and I think this is a reason why, for example, the destruction of homes was not very prominent in the reporting because the synagogues and the shops were much more visible uh, to the uh, observers than the um, attacks on private homes. I was one of the things that stood out to me in the essays was the way in which the reporting within each country depended on their specific national context. And so I noticed that the reporting in Poland was in some ways driven by the crisis of the um, Nazi decision and action to eject a number of Poles from Germany into Poland, or the decision reporting in Britain was driven by perception, at least with the BBC, driven by perceptions of uh, the foreign policy needs of the government. Um, I wonder, that that was one of the things that stuck out to me. Are there broad conclusions about the reporting that, that stuck out to you from these essays? I think the broadest conclusion, uh, and we can see parallels to today in the United States, is that when you have a tyrant as a dictator um, or someone who wishes to style himself that way, that it takes a great deal of courage to stand up against this. And what we saw throughout Europe and the United States was a definite lack of courage. Um, and that many Americans, including our government, especially our government and our FBI, uh, were so concerned with Reds that we never really took Nazis and fascists seriously in this country. After all, they were white and Christian, Jews were still not quite white, and they certainly were not Christian. Um, and so there's, a, 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 including the New York Times, Jews didn't want to make too many waves. <clears throat> so their coverage was also tempered by not wanting to be too visible, making too many waves in public. And what we have seen, I think, throughout history is when evil starts rising up, if you don't stop it, it's not going to stop on its own. Yeah, and I would add, uh, I mean, there is this uh, situation uh, that 1938, Germany was at uh, its high point. Uh, I mean, it uh, gained without bloodshed Austria, the Sudetenland, so a big part of um, the former Czechoslovakia. Uh, so it was internationally very powerful again. And uh, so the, especially neighboring countries had to be more careful kind of what are our, what our, will be our relationships with Germany since they realized there is an expansion going on, a drive for expansion. And um, the more, uh, and there was this kind of appeasement policy um, uh, which actually enabled the expansion of Germany. And so the more a state had influence on a certain media, as we saw in this um, in the contribution on the BBC, uh, the less reporting and the less uh, kind of thinking about the the, uh, the kind of 
uh, repercussions of the events uh, uh, was and kind of visible in these media. Yeah, that's a good point. Steve, um, uh, there are a couple of essays, one of which is yours, about American reactions and responses. I, I wonder if you, you've already set America a little bit in context. I, I wonder if you if, if there's anything more you want to say about the American context in, in terms of Kristallnacht. Uh, and then maybe uh, your essay was fascinating. If you could say more, a, a little bit more about um, the way um, the uh, the Nazi, uh, the the American Nazi attempt to move toward a position of power was um, was interfered with or forestalled by these Jewish responses. That would be great. Well, <clears throat> I mean, those are a lot of different questions here. Um, that's why they pay me the big bucks. Yeah. Uh, the first story, let me take a step back. Um, I've been going around the country the last two years talking about my book, Hitler in L.A., and the question I get asked all the time is, how come we don't know this story? How come there's the history of fascism and Nazism in America and the starting in the late 20s, well, mid-20s through the war, is really an underwritten history. And I think part of the answer is it's a mea culpa for my generation of historians, of new left historians who are at college in the late 60s and graduate school in the early 70s. And <clears throat> we were really dealing with the question of communism and anti-communism. And we never took fascism and Nazism seriously because I think we made a huge mistake in saying because Germany lost the war, uh, they clearly couldn't have been a big threat because they lost. If they had been a big enough threat, they would have won. They would have had some kind of compromise. But the Soviet Union emerges victorious. They quickly regroup despite how much they suffered during the war. And they are seen as the threat. And so we have had decades and decades where we've not paid attention to this history. And so for me to go through it and suddenly realize this history is much greater than we thought, that Americans were far more fascist oriented and pro-Nazi than we ever would have thought here. Um, and that I was really struck at how much uh, all along the Pacific coast, at one point, Hitler sent... Uh, Fritz uh, Wiedermann, his uh, commanding officer in World War I, and for a while his sort of top advisor, to California to see if, uh, in the mid-30s, to see, uh, well, around 37, to see how much support there was for national socialism. And he wrote back and said, you have tremendous support amongst the business leaders on the Pacific coast. And so here you have a Nazi group that is, um, in fact, growing. And one of the things I discovered is we would think that for Nazis, New York was the most important city, but in fact, it was Los Angeles, because New York, uh, for your listeners, New York was being run by Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, whose father was an Italian Protestant, but whose mother was Jewish. So the half-Jewish mayor of New York uh, actually made a deal with the mob saying, I want you guys to, you guys control the docks. We're going to turn a blind eye to what you're doing. If in turn, you make sure that the Nazi German vessels that are docking are not bringing in spies 
propaganda, etc., to the extent you can. The L.A. ports <clears throat> were totally open. And so Germany was sending in its spies, its money, and its propaganda material to the L.A. ports. And then from L.A., it was sent throughout the country. So one of the things I discovered is there's, um, for example, within Los Angeles elite society, the most popular diplomat from 1933 until German diplomats are expelled in June 1941 is the Nazi council to Los Angeles, George Gisling. Uh, and you have a city that thinks he's absolutely wonderful. And how bad could Hitler be if he sends over someone as uh, charming and as sophisticated as George Gisling? <clears throat> and so when Kristallnacht comes, there's a lot of browbeating, a lot of uh, pounding on the chest, and how could this happen? And then within a few weeks, it's all forgotten. And that's really the American story. Uh, and so when people say, why didn't Jews do more? My response is, it wasn't for Jews. First of all, Jews did more. That one of the things I discovered in the course of writing the book, and especially after, is while L.A. had the most extensive spy operation on Nazis, there were Jews were spying on Nazis throughout the country, the Anti-Defamation League and the American Jewish Committee and the Non-Sectarian Anti-Nazi League all had spies going in different cities trying to monitor what was going on. And so the question is not why didn't Jews do more. The question is why didn't the American government do more to stop fascism and Nazism in this country? So how did they... How does it happen that these groups decide that they need to take upon themselves the responsibility for um, recruiting and employing spies to monitor these fascist or Nazi organizations? How did they decide to do that? Well, it's not they. It always starts with one person. And in this case, it started with Leon Lewis, who was the founding executive secretary of the Anti-Defamation League. He had graduated uh, University of Chicago Law School in 1913, the year the ADL was founded. And rather than take a job with a commercial law firm, he actually believed in the uh, Hebrew concept of tikkun olam, which is to heal the world. And so he was, the best way to describe him is a lawyer with a social worker's heart. And he worked for the ADL for many years. Uh, he served in World War One. He then came back, and after serving in Europe, he told the ADL leaders, he said, look, we have to not only monitor anti-Semitism in America, we need to monitor anti-Semitism throughout the world. Uh, and so, of course, like anyone in any organization, if you have a good idea of something new you should do, he then got asked to do it. So he then yep. became both the international secretary and the national, which meant there was probably no American following Hitler's rise to power during the 1920s more carefully than Leon Lewis. And he, when he moved to L.A. in 1931, he still remained the ADL's representative to Southern California. And from 1915 on, he, he was the ADL's representative to the movie industry, working with the moguls to make sure they had no anti-Semitic images in their films. And so Lewis, <clears throat> Hitler becomes Reich Chancellor in January 33, and Lewis is participating in all these meetings with the American Jewish Committee, the American Jewish Congress, the Anti-Defamation League, trying to figure out 
what are we going to do? How are we going to oppose Hitler? And one of the things you need to understand in America, again, this idea that American Jews didn't do much, that they were passive in the face of Hitler is 100% wrong. American Jews had different strategies. The unfortunate thing is there was no unified strategy. But having divided approaches to dealing with Hitler is, is very different than saying they had no approaches. And so you had the American Jewish Congress that said, we have to get in Hitler's face and launch an international boycott of all products, German products, until Hitler stops persecuting all minorities. The American Jewish Committee argued that, no, Hitler is a bully, and this is just going to make him double down against the Jews. What we need to do is work behind the scenes with religious leaders in Germany and get them to, to pressure Hitler to temper his policies. So Leon Lewis is going to all these meetings. And finally, when Nazis hold their first open meeting in L.A., calling themselves the Friends of New Germany in July 1933, and uh, offer their headquarters, in the basement of their headquarters, they set up cots uh, and offer any either German or American veteran, World War I veteran who's homeless and needs a place to stay, they can stay with the Friends of New Germany for free. They can get food, shelter, clothing, and uh, all they need to do is listen to Hans Winterhalder, the Minister of Propaganda, explain the uh, principles of the, of the New Germany. And what Leon Lewis realized is this is the same way Hitler had raised his brown shirt army in Munich in the 1920s by appealing to disgruntled veterans. And Southern California had the largest number of veterans in the United States. Over 150,000 were here. And so Lewis suddenly thought, oh my God, they are trying to raise a brown shirt army in my city. And at that point, he said, enough is enough. Too much talk. Now we need action. And he went, he was a member of the Disabled American Veterans, and he went to the meeting hall and he recruited four DAV members and their wives again in late July 1933 and asked them to go undercover and join all these groups and report back to him. And they did. And over the course of the next 12 years, he cycled through a whole group of spies because he would test, have them testify in court. He had them testify before the House on American Activities Committee. And once you have a spy testify, they're burned. They, they can't do anything. And the irony is when I started this project and uh, put in a petition to get Freedom Information Act request for Hermann Schwinn, who is the leader of the Nazis in L.A. and the number two Nazi in America, um, the, his Freedom of Information Act file began in 1942. And that's when I realized that all the information the FBI received was basically from Leon Lewis and his chief assistant, Joe Roos. Um, so they were responsible for monitoring Nazis while the FBI was fundamentally asleep at the wheel because J. Edgar Hoover had ordered them not to investigate any Nazis because when a request came in from the local bureau in 1940, Hoover wrote back, well, Hermann Schwinn has broken no law Therefore, you can't put him under surveillance. But he did have his local agents putting Jewish directors, writers, producers, and actors under surveillance, even though they broke no laws. 
but they were suspected of being communists, not Nazis or fascists. So we had a very double standard in this country, and it was a double standard that men like Leon Lewis knew, and he thought if Jews are going to be protected, it's going to be up to us to protect them, not the government, not the police, not the sheriff, not the FBI. It's a very frightening thing to realize that you are alone in your own country with no one in law enforcement really having your back. And by, uh, if I may add, this uh, actually mirrors also uh, what we had as a misunderstanding that Jews didn't react or resisted during uh, in Nazi Germany. And uh, there's it's just kind of, as Steve says, uh, a very kind of uh, big variety of responses. And uh, it deserves much more scrutiny and much more kind of investigation to actually really Uh, evaluate how did Jews respond and what how did they react and to what did they actually react and uh, in my research on Kristallnacht I found that uh, what also we didn't really expect Jews actually uh, resisted during Kristallnacht so they were not just passive victims which is kind of I think uh, uh, you can see actually over the whole course of persecution even during the war Jews individual, uh, individually resisted. And during Kristallnacht, for example, uh, Jews would go into synagogues uh, preserving uh, kind of religious objects. They would kind of uh, publicly protest uh, against uh, the violence. Uh, Jewish communities uh, wrote petitions against uh, to the Gestapo, to the SS, to stop the violence. Uh, they demanded uh, uh, in person Uh, to to end uh, the attacks, and uh, individuals also kind of physically even uh, defended themselves during the attacks. So in some cases, uh, they uh, beat up uh, stormtroopers. Uh, in one case, when they raided retraining camps um, where young Jewish uh, teenagers prepared themselves for immigration, and the stormtroopers destroyed their facilities uh, and beat up uh, the male teenagers. There, in one testimony. Uh, a survivor, uh, which was a young woman of 16 years old, kind of uh, explains how she used the jiu-jitsu trick to kind of overwhelm one of the stormtroopers who was equally young, also just 18. And uh, uh, so there was uh, self-defense, there was a kind of uh, resistance uh, almost everywhere. We just have to actually find it and to rediscover it. So... So those are that's fascinating stories. Let me take a step back because the first essay in the book we've we've been using just kind of casually using the term Kristallnacht. The first essay in the book um, suggests maybe we should not be so casual or instinctive about the language we use, um, and also maybe calls into question the idea of of Kristallnacht as a pogrom. So I wondered, and and maybe Steve, you can start, and Wolf can pitch in, but what what is the right label to use for this event and and what are the the challenges that uh, that um what are what are the ways some labels may not, may not uh convey the appropriate meaning yeah it it right what they argued is a pogrom is something that starts in a local community it's fundamentally local hate that boils up against local residents 
they argue that to call Kristallnacht that is to say, well, it's just generated by hate, local hate towards Jews. They said, no, that's, that misses the full scope. They call it state terror. That in fact, we don't want to call it pogrom because this is coordinated by the state. That Nazis were sending out orders, that this was, even though they later on said, no, this was spontaneous by the people, they were, at least in our first essay, it argued that this was being done in Germany and in Austria with the cooperation of state authorities and with the police, and that uh, <clears throat> this was very much orchestrated and not simply a spot. Now, there were moments of spontaneity occurring, but that this was state-orchestrated violence, and that state-orchestrated violence is a very different uh, degree of violence than simply local prejudice erupting into violence. And I think they're right. Yeah, I, uh, I think uh, especially uh, to underline that this was not kind of a random mob violence, which suddenly kind of uh, had an outburst all over Germany. So I think in this regard, they are right. But they also argue uh, against a certain uh, kind of discourse, especially in, in Germany. So in the beginning, um, uh, maybe when we go back in history, how people actually describe what happened uh, during what we now call here in the English-speaking world, Kristallnacht, or uh, in more in Europe, uh, uh, Progrom. In the beginning, Jews actually, when they, for example, in exile in Paris, when they wrote about this, they used Progrom as a term. Uh, so for them, this was the only kind of connection they could make to the violence in uh, Eastern Poland um, 20 years earlier or in the Ukraine. So they had no other, other reference there. Um, the term Kristallnacht actually evolves and first people thought it was kind of a kind of a resistance joke because the Nazis all termed all these kind of new uh, words and so it was called Reichskristallnacht. But in fact, now we know that uh, there was um, the first time uh, it was used by a Nazi, a regional Nazi leader. So after the war, you can see that Kristallnacht plays a role in news media and German uh, kind of press articles about the events. So it kind of became common and was picked up by English speaking uh, uh, kind of the Times, the, the London Times and also the New York Times. Uh, started in, towards the end of the 1940s to pick this up as a term. That's what, how it came into the English-speaking world. Um, today, there is a lot of discussion also in sociology about kind of these instances of violence, how, do, uh, how we can actually define them. What is a riot? What is a kind of a, a, a program? Uh, and I uh, agree with uh, Stephen, uh, Chris what we call here Kristallnacht, is a very specific uh, state-sponsored uh, 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 and organized uh, event of mass violence. And maybe in the end, that is really important or really um, appropriate to uh, coin a new term for it. So coming to the end of our time, Several of the essays at the end of your book talk about the way in which the memory of Kristallnacht plays a role in contemporary politics. And so there's an essay on India, uh, an essay on Israel, an essay on survivor literature from uh, Rwanda and Myanmar. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I'll ask uh, Wolf to start and then maybe Steve can uh, jump in. What, what can you say about 
the way in which the role of the memory, what can you say about the role the memory of Kristallnacht plays in contemporary politics? So, I mean, important is that uh, already contemporaries uh, understood that this was unprecedented. Uh, uh, the scale of the and intensity of the violence was unprecedented, and this was uh, kind of a to- point of no return in anti-Jewish policies in uh, Nazi Germany. So the dimension was already clear for our contemporaries. Uh, and even more so for today, when we look back what unfolded later. So we see this now as one kind of uh, rupture towards um, the uh, mass extermination of the, the Jews in Europe. So this is how most people understand this event. And we look uh, towards other kind of outbursts of violence. And sometimes people, since this has such a kind of a, um, uh, importance and weight as a term, people tend to use this and uh, adopt the term for other um, uh, event, violent events uh, to make them more kind of, uh, make people more aware that uh, these might be beginnings of certain developments or to that make people aware of the, uh, the kind of impact of the violence on the victims. So, for example, in our volume, we have one article about um, attacks on African immigrants in Israel, which was coined uh, Israeli uh, Kristallnacht. And interestingly, from both political uh, ends of the spectrum, left and right, they used Kristallnacht as a term to describe these events. Or, uh, uh, for example, thinking about the Rwandan genocide, survivors used terms like Kristallnacht, program or uh, the Holocaust as kind of reference points to make people understand what unfolds in uh, Rwanda. Steve, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, I, I think that the term Kristallnacht still has valence in contemporary society, and we've seen it in India to a lesser extent uh, in Rwanda and a lesser extent in, uh, well, actually not a lesser extent in Rwanda, lesser extent in Israel, which is when riots and murder break out. And it's not simply uh, local groups rising up, but that we get a sense there are state authorities involved. That's when I think Kristallnacht gets invoked, because it's something far more dangerous, far more, excuse me, frightening than just simple local hate. It's the forces of the state that are being used to persecute and in many cases to murder uh, people simply because of their minority status. And so uh, I think Kristallnacht, people may forget exactly what happened, but they remember the massive terror. And that massive terror is both a metaphor and something more than just a metaphor for looking at and I'd say looking at ourselves and looking at the world around us. And uh, if I may add, uh, it is also uh, important that we revisit these uh, uh, violent events to exactly tease out uh, the responsibility of the state and of government institutions. Uh, as this article, for example, the comparison between Kristallnacht and the Gujarat program uh, shows, because a lot of the kind of uh, violence against minorities in world history is perceived as random and uh, unorganized outbursts of 
paid. But in uh, many of these uh, incidents, we see that actually the state is uh, involved either by instigating and organizing or by uh, uh, kind of not interfering uh, against the violence. And I think this is one of the big lessons to really understand that these kind of targeting, uh, targeted violent events are, uh, that the state has a role in this. Well, that's maybe an excellent way to feed into my last question, and I'll ask Steve to go first, and then Wolf can pitch in. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so this book is eighty years on, and has I forget fifteen or sixteen or seventeen new essays that shed new light on on Kristallnacht. What what do we what do we still need to know about Kristallnacht? Are there still places where we need to flesh out our understanding of what happened on that uh, that that few days, or is most of what we need to do now putting it into a broader context? Well, I think on the American side, there's plenty to do. We had only two essays in the entire collection dealing with uh, the United States situation. And again, as far as I'm concerned, the presence of Nazis and fascists in pre-war and, in fact, wartime America is a history that still needs to be written. Um, and in fact, I'm looking at the post-war era of the rise of not re-rise of Nazi and fascist groups and racist group, white supremacists. So I, I would say that we've just in this country, we've just scratched the surface and that we have to get beyond the cliche that oh, Crystal not changed American public opinion. Because at the same time uh, people were denouncing Germany, you also had large portions of the people suggesting that Jews were responsible for what was going on in Germany, or at least bore a great deal of responsibility. No, they didn't. And that is an assumption of ignorance. And one of the things historians try to do is clarify what is ignorance and what is truth. So I would say there's a great deal of work to be done in the United States, and I'll pass it to Wolf to talk about the European story. Yeah, so if we think about Nazi Germany itself, I think the, the um, revision uh, to look more onto the impact of the Jewish population uh, of the violence, I think, uh, leads or opens doors for a whole lot uh, of new questions. So, for example, when I talked about the destruction of homes in my article, uh, we have now to find out what actually happened to to the people who lost their homes. They were homeless. They were shelterless. Who kind of sheltered them? This opens the next question. Uh, there was um, obviously from the first documents I saw and testimonies I uh, looked at, uh, there was more solidarity than we ever expected. Uh, on the one hand, the people helped Jews. But on the other hand, we also see there was looting um, uh, on a large scale. So there was also much more um, uh, more uh, broader spectrum of the Germans involved in the violence. So here are uh, kind of a whole new avenues of uh, research opening up. The other thing is what our um, uh, contributions in the uh, volume show is we really also have to look at what actually happens in the neighboring countries. So we have an article on Poland there, but we, it's really interesting to see with a new lens, a new perspective, what, how were the reactions in these neighboring countries? Because they were affected um, uh, on uh, for uh, kind of by two things. On the one hand, 
the Nazi politics, but on the other hand, also Jewish refugees, which kind of um, started to uh, come in on a larger scale. And so um, either the state, private organizations, and also Jewish communities had to react towards these instances. So I think there's a lot more to explore and to understand. But uh, for me, the most important is really we don't even kind of grasp the gravity uh, of the impact on the to the Jewish families, what it meant to lose your last refuge which you had, your private your private home, and I think where uh, what I found so remarkable is that while we never read about this in kind of literature, uh, and Steve can confirm this, in Jewish survivor families, the invasion of the private homes is a very common kind of story. And uh, Steve, may you may add uh, your kind of uh, personal story to this, um, which kind of shows uh, kind of the large kind of legacy of this um, of uh, this event. I mean, the painting. Oh yes, my um, my wife's uh, parents, uh, her grandparents, were in Germany during Kristallnacht. And the Nazis broke in uh, to their home. Uh, they had a lovely portrait that had been done by uh, Schiller, and it had been torn in half. And somehow they managed to take the document, to take, take the torn portrait, bring it with them to America, and have it restored. And it's in our bedroom now. Restored, although when you look closely, you can see the tears in the original drawing. But it's, you know, for us, it's a reminder of both the violence, but the idea that even amidst the violence, people want to bring something with them, something that's both a treasure and also a reminder of one of the greatest horrors they've ever lived through. Well, that seems an appropriate place to leave the interview. So, Steve, I'll just ask you the, <clears throat> excuse me, the final question that we ask all of our guests, uh, which is to, is there a book or a couple books or a movie or documentary? What, what was meaningful to you as you thought about this subject that you think the audience should, should watch or listen or, or read? Well, the one thing they can all get a hold of is the Eric Larson and the Garden of the Beasts. And what I loved about that book is, first of all, it tells an important story, but it tells it. I was looking for ways to write because I wanted to reach a larger audience. And he is a lovely writer. And he tells the, the story of our ambassador who's sent by Roosevelt because no one wants to go to Germany, William Dodd. And here's somebody who knows very little about what's going on and is totally appalled, tries to alert the American government and particularly the State Department to what's going on in Germany, tries to alert them very early on in Hitler's regime to the fact that this is a madman who is really dangerous and no one wants to listen to him. So in terms of the effectiveness of a story and the way to tell it, that was very important. I think it, for readers who haven't read much, it will pull them right into the early part of the story. And then something that affected me greatly, but your readers can't, your listeners can't get to unless they come to USC Special Collections, is the 
the number two spy master in my book, Hitler in Los Angeles, Joe Roos, has an unpublished autobiography here. And it is astounding. And I was particularly taken when he writes about Kristallnacht because he was um, Vienna-born, Berlin-raised German, uh, German-Austrian Jew who came to Chicago in the late 20s when his parents said, you got to get out of Germany and start over. And he came over as a newspaper man, but eventually wound up working as a story writer for Jesse Lasky. And um, he was working part-time for Leon Lewis as a volunteer, helping him collate his papers, his spy reports. And finally, after Kristallnacht, he said to his wife, at least this is what he writes in his memoir, I can't be writing these ridiculous stories anymore, these movies of boys and girls meeting, kissing, falling in love, when all this is going on in Germany. And he quits an incredibly well-paying job to work for almost nothing. He worked, He gets so little money that his wife, who was a former nurse, had to go back out to work again. And she said, I don't mind because what you're doing is too important not to do it. And so he then tells the story of how one couple was deeply affected by Kristallnacht and decided that they had to devote their lives to making sure nothing like this came to America. So it was, for me, very moving. And well, it's a wonderful book that you've been. Oh, sorry, Wolf, go ahead. Oh no, I, I thought I just add uh, uh, for me uh, some. What was very kind of uh, important was, as I said in the beginning, it's actually the um, video testimonies of the survivors, which led to kind of the revisiting of the events. And I think I would recommend. Uh, just to watch one of these interviews, uh, either specifically on Kristallnacht or in general, because I think for today's uh, world, uh, there are not only lessons to learn, but it's also really important to uh, to get an impression of their personal experience. And one can go online, vhaonline.usc.edu, and although you can't listen to all the 55,000 testimonies, but three or three or 4,000 or so are available everywhere in the world. So I would recommend uh, just to watch a testimony. Well, it's a fab- fabulous book. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you for spending some time uh, talking about it with us today. We've been talking with Wolf Gruner and Steve Ross about their new book, New Perspectives on Kristallnacht, After 80 Years, The Nazi Pogrom in Global Comparison. And listeners, I hope you'll be with me next time when I talk to Alexander Watson about his book, The Fortress. So until then, Steve and Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.